grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We are here this evening to study in the word of God. We are in Romans, part of our Romans review. We are in chapter 15. We began looking at a section at the beginning of Romans on Sunday morning. We're looking at verses 1 through 12, but we took a look at the first seven verses on Sunday morning, and we will pick up in verses 8 through 12 here this evening. Before we do any of that, let's take a moment for silent prayer. We need to make sure that our hearts are indeed prepared for the study of the Word of God. This entails confession of sin if needed so that we might be filled with the Spirit, but also humility and clarity of thought. So while we have this silent prayer, make sure that you have prepared yourselves for the study of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for blessing us with this opportunity to gather at the church this evening. We thank you for your protection of this local church, not only the building itself so that we might gather here, but the believers who come here and worship together at this local church. Pray for your continued hedge of protection around us as this world that we live in seems to be getting darker and darker and more and more depraved. We ask that your hand of protection would ever be around us. Keep us safe from the evil one. We pray tonight as we take this time to study your word, we pray that you would bless this time. Help each and every one of us to focus our attention on what it is that your word is teaching us that through the ministry of your word, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. Before I uh, jump in on our Romans review, I had something I was going to share. I got um, a text from a brother in Christ. However, I'm going to keep it anonymous. And uh, pay attention while I'm reading through this because the punchline, it's not really a joke, it's, but, the, but the, the effective message is at the very end of this. All right, here we go. One of my children was upset with my wife because of my wife's reaction to a phone call. It went south from there. I called my child but received no answer. I left a detailed message. I texted and asked that they listen to the message. No response. I was about to call again a few hours later. I was going to say, please don't ignore me when I need to communicate with you. You may be reacting immaturely to both imagined and real offenses from others, but this is no excuse to be unresponsive to me and shut me out. I have demonstrated my love for you through sacrifice for you all, excuse me, sacrifice for you all of your life. And you need to understand that you should never doubt that I always have your best interests in mind, even if you don't get what you want or you are mad. And then I realized that this sounds exactly like what God is always saying to me. Right. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Any anyone anyone could have written that. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, it's one of those things where you're in a situation like that and all of a sudden you realize, wow, that's that must be how God feels. 
You know, that must be how God feels, the way that uh, I treat him. So I thought that was really good, and I wanted to share that with you all tonight. All right, our uh, study, we're looking at verses 8 through 12 here, actually. We're in an overall section, verses 1 through 12. But as I said, we've already looked at the first seven verses. So this is verses 8 through 12 of chapter 15 of Romans. For I state that Christ has become a minister to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. And again, the scripture says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, the scripture says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles in him shall the Gentiles hope. Let's look at some principles of this. During his first advent, Jesus' initial initial mission was directed toward the Jews. Uh, For those who have been doing the Bible reading, uh, we just read this just recently as part of the Bible reading. Uh, Matthew 15:24, but he answered and says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So his primary mission when he was sent. Now, again, what we have to understand is you have to be able to differentiate in Jesus's life between what he was given to do in his life and what he was given to do in his death. They're not the same thing. He had a life mission. And in John chapter 17, as he's praying the high priestly prayer to the Father. He says, I've completed the work you've given me to do. Well, he hadn't gone to the cross yet. But the work that he was given to do was first, you've got to think of it, it's almost, it's almost kind of strange to think of it this way, but when God the Father sent his son to this earth, he gave his son a ministry. And in fact, it was ministries, plural, but his initial ministry, his work of ministry initially was to the Jewish people. That's who he was given to reach out to even now after christ has ascended and has been seated in heaven he continues to serve the nation that rejected him in uh, that verse we were just looking at it says i state that christ has become a minister to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of truth of god to confirm the promises given to the father so he in other words he remains in ministry if you will to the to the jews even though he's now ascended and seated at the right hand of the father He's a minister to the circumcision right now. This is at the root of their provocation to jealousy. You've got to realize that the the Jews have been provoked to jealousy because of what, quite frankly, because of the stewardship of the church, what's going on right now. And Deuteronomy 32.21, they have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are not a people, I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Now, you've got to understand, these are verses that had primary application. This is in Deuteronomy that had primary application to the nation of Israel at the time. But nonetheless, nonetheless is there not application to what's going on today? There is, because you've got to realize some of these verses Paul's quoting here in this section. So he's saying that principle, that same principle that was expressed here in these verses is taking place right now. I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. If you think about it, we're talking about a people group here, right? A people group. The church is a people group. 
What's unique about the church is it's not limited to a nationality. It's not limited to a geography, right? I mean, the church is not limited to a particular nation, nor is it limited to a particular location on earth, right? You've got the church coming out as a people group from among uh, all of the nations on the earth. And so that's, a, that's something that was not a people. There was no such thing as that prior to the church, right? There was no such thing as what we have now with the church prior to the church. Romans 10, 19 through 21 says, but I say, uh, but I say Israel certainly did not know, right? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. This is pretty much a quote of what we were just looking at. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, excuse me, as for Israel, Isaiah says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. <laughs> so so the, the message, as you see the quotation of these verses, you can see that Paul is making application of those verses to what's going on right now in God's plan. Romans 11, 11, I say then they did not stumble so as to fall beyond recovery, did they? Absolutely not. On the contrary, by means of their failure to believe Salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to make them jealous. And that's the truth. The, the salvation has come to the Gentiles that makes them jealous. And by the way, not, not just the idea of those that are believing in salvation coming to the Gentiles, but you've got to realize there's also a jealousy that comes from the fact that there's a new steward, right? There's a new steward, and it's not Israel. It's the church. That makes them jealous as well. Verse 14 in Romans 11, hopeful that I might move my kinsmen to jealousy and save some of them, right? Let me back up and get the context here. He says here, uh, but I'm speaking to you, the Gentiles, given that I am indeed an apostle of Gentiles. I take my ministry very seriously, hopeful that I might move my kinsmen. That's talking about his, you know, his earthly kinsmen is the Jews, my kinsmen to jealousy and save some of them. So Paul recognized, in other words, you've got to realize that for Paul, you know, we talk about in his ministry, he was called, he was called to be um, a minister to the Gentiles. But if you look at his ministry, he kind of uh, had an approach to it that when he would first go into a town, we've talked about this, when he would first go into a town, where would he go? To the synagogue. Because he wanted to proclaim Jesus to the Jewish people in the synagogue. That's where he wanted to go. And then when when some people would believe and then they would kick him out of there, right? That's usually what ended up happening is they kick him out of the synagogue. He would go and preach to the Gentiles. So from the very beginning, his heart was with getting the gospel message to the Jewish people, even though he was called to be a minister to the Gentiles. Well, you see in that verse we just read that he still has a heart for that. He says, look, I, I am a minister to the Gentiles, and he wants to do exactly what God has for him to do for and with the Gentiles, but... In his heart, he's hoping that the Jewish people will be jealous as a result of that and will, some of them will get saved. He still has that heart for the, for the Jewish people. He can't, there's nothing he can do about that as part of who he is. Uh, in his present, he, present heavenly session, Jesus is actively uniting Jews and Gentiles. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, we're going to read this whole section. Therefore, remember that formerly you... The Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God 
in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Now, notice it's talking present tense here in verse 14. He himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So certainly a big part of this is what he did, past tense, in order to make this possible, right? What he did on the cross and uh, made it possible. But, but you've got to understand there is an ongoing ministry in this regard. Verse 16, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now notice, we, we, we go to these passages and we look at some of these verses and we, we use them in, in other other along with other verses when we're studying things. But notice the context of all of this. The context of this is the division between Jew and Gentile and how Jesus, through what he did on the cross and his present ministry, even though he's ascended and seated at the right hand, his present ministry in reconciling the two groups. Now, how does that happen today? When Jews and Gentiles believe and become part of the body of Christ, right? That's how the enmity is removed. If you have unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles, do you think there's going to be peace between them? No, because if you look at what there is still today, the hardcore Orthodox Jews still look at the Gentiles as, you know, worthless dogs, right? In their mind, the Gentiles are ugly, worthless dogs. Well, how that enmity is taken care of is through both groups, Individuals from both groups believing in becoming part of the body of Christ. Yes, sir. I was going to say that uh, that's a simple solution to the uh, stewardship problem is the Jews just believing in Christ, becoming part of the church. If, if, as, it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. That's exactly right. If it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are now part of the stewardship today, which is the church itself. That's exactly right. So that answers the stewardship issue. There's no reason for jealousy in that regard. Uh, because as part of the church, you are part of the stewardship. During the millennial kingdom, Jesus will praise the Father among Gentile nations after he has conquered them. Uh, we've got a few verses to read here in Psalm 18. Jesus is going gonna, is gonna to praise the Father among the Gentile nations after he has conquered them. Verses 30 through 50 here in Psalm 18. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? The God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless. He makes my feet like hinds feet and sets me upon my high places. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. 
You, are, you have also given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand upholds me, and your gentleness makes me great. You enlarge steps under me, and my feet have not slipped. I pursued my enemies and overtook them, and I did not turn back until they were consumed. I shattered them so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet, for you have girded me with strength for battle. You have subdued, me, uh, subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also made my enemies turn their backs to me, and I destroyed those who hated me. They cried for help, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them fine as the dust before the wind. I emptied them out as the mire in the streets. You have delivered me from the contentions of the people. You have placed me as head of the nations, a people whom I have not known serve me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners submit to me. Foreigners fade away. And come trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who executes vengeance for me and subdues people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. Surely you lift me above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. Therefore I will give thanks to you among the nations, O Lord. I will sing praises to your name. He gives great deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Notice the very end of that, David and his descendants forever. This, this is a passage where David is talking about himself in the present tense of what's going on right then and right there. But this is also a prophetic passage. You notice they didn't have the capitalization that I probably would have put in here. There should be capitalization in there because this is actually one of those passages that's also a prophetic passage talking about what's going to happen. Yet future in the millennial kingdom, Jesus Christ is going to conquer the nations. They will submit to him initially, right? Well, when does the conquering actually take place? Let's, let's be specific here. When does the conquering take place? In the tribulation. If you want to be technical about it, it's because when he comes at the second advent, that's, that's the correct answer, but when he comes at the second advent... It's still during the tribulation. So the conquering actually takes place tribulation. But then when you get to the millennial kingdom, you're going to have the nation submitted to him. And part of the reason for that is everybody who's around is going to be believers, right? When you get to the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Uh, but the reality of it is uh, you're going to have that's that's going to be. And, you know, it's interesting. The idea of Jesus proclaiming the glory of the father to the to all the Gentile nations. Remember, he's going to be at that point in time. He's going to be on the Davidic throne, king of Israel. Right. Let's make let's make no mistake. He's king of Israel during the millennial kingdom. There will still be Gentile kings, Gentile leaders and rulers. And he will be proclaiming the glory of the father among the nations. We remember we are uh, servants. Of the new covenant, right? That's language in the scripture that we are ministers of the new covenant. That means servants of the new covenant. Not today. We're not doing anything in that role today, but we will in the millennial kingdom. So one of the things I think that's going to take place, this is I cannot point to a scripture that says this, but I can put scriptures together. We are going to be servants of the new covenant. The new covenant is going to be in effect in the millennial kingdom, right? New covenant is going to be in effect in the millennial kingdom. We're going to be servants of the covenant. Part of what's going to be happening is Jesus is going to be proclaiming the glory of the Father to the Gentile nations. I think that's one of the things we're going to be doing as his, as his servants. We're going to be going out and proclaiming the glory of the Father to the Gentile nations. We'll see when we get there, right? But that's one of the things I believe is going to happen as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom. The law, writings, prophets tell of God's provision for Gentiles 
through the promises given to Israel. So we have in, the, in the, these three sections of the Old Testament, the law, the writings, the prophets, all of that in the Old Testament tells of God's provision for Gentiles through the promises given to Israel. There, you know, there's all kinds of benefits for the Gentiles through the promises that were given to the people of Israel, such as, that's where our Savior came from, right? That's, a, that's the biggest one of them all. But there's all kinds of other things where Gentiles will actually benefit uh, from the promises given to the nation of Israel. The ultimate fulfillment of this is eschatological, uh, but is foreshadowed in the present blessings for both Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ. In other words, there's gonna, that, uh, the ultimate fulfillment of what I'm talking about is going to take place in the, in the future yet, at the end, in the end times. But nonetheless, I mean, think about, think about the blessings. Think about this for a second. The blessings for the, for the Gentiles. Remember, the church is gone when we get to tribulation and, we, and when we get to the millennial kingdom. The church is gone. So the whole idea of what we have today, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, that's present today because we're in the church and we are, as believers, we are in Christ. We are positionally in Christ. And as part of the, the stewardship of the church, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile. Well, once the church is gone, the rapture has happened, the church is gone, you're back to an economy, if you will, a spiritual economy now where you have Jew and Gentile. Who are the stewards? Who are the stewards on earth after we're gone? It's going to be Israel again. So you're going to have Jew and Gentile. So, but think about this for a second. Once you get to the millennial kingdom, once you've gotten through the tribulation and you're now in the millennial kingdom, think about the blessings for all those Gentile nations to be there with the Lord Jesus Christ on the throne in, in Jerusalem over, over Israel. All of the nations are going to be blessed, Right. Not just because of what, uh, what the blessings are going to be for Israel during that time, but all the nations will be blessed. All nations will be. I mean, think about the ability. I, can just, I can't even imagine the ability to just, I tell you what, let's, let's go over, to, let's, just, let's just all take a trip over to Jerusalem and hear Jesus teach. I mean, how cool would that be? Let's go, right? <laughs> I, think I, could probably, I think I could probably get us all together to go on a trip to Israel if we knew that Jesus was going to be there teaching, right? <laughs> I think we would all go. I mean, what an amazing thing to think about. But so most of, it, most of it is eschatological, but there is a foreshadowing of all of that in present blessings for both the Jew and the Gentile in the body of Christ. Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself is our peace. Uh, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier, the dividing wall, right? So that we, lived, we looked at that, right, just a minute ago. The, he is our peace. He's, he's made both groups into one. The point being that in these passages that we're looking at in Romans where it's talking about all of these things, right, relative to the Jewish people and Gentiles and so on and so forth, there's a future that you can look to, but there's also a present blessing reality today for all of those who believe and are part of the, a part of the body of Christ. Therefore, believers today who were born Jewish should lovingly accept those who were born Gentile just as they have been accepted in Christ. Now, that's, this is actually now a Romans 14 application, right? What we've been looking at, Romans 14, then on into this. Now, you've got Jews who have been raised, in many, in many cases have been raised with the idea that the Jewish people are superior and Gentiles are inferior. And I'm serious, that goes on. That's, that's, that's very real in the world we still live in today, that Jewish people are superior and Gentiles are inferior. Once they're part of the body of Christ, 
And once they, once they are a believer today, and even though they were born Jewish, they should lovingly accept anybody who was born as a Gentile because they've been accepted in Christ as both, both of them, right? The Jew's been accepted in Christ. The Gentile's been accepted in Christ, and they should accept each other. By the way, it works the other way around. There's some people that are Gentiles who might not be comfortable with the Jewish people. And that's what I just have there. It should be reciprocal, which we saw in Romans 15:7, the uh, last verse of the previous section we were looking at. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. And so that principle of accepting one another, right? I mean, we learned about accepting one another in the Romans 14 sense. And now we have the idea of accepting one another in the, in the Jew and Gentile sense. All right, we're going to get to verses 13 and 14 here now. Now, may the God who gives hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will be enriched with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also have become convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, having been filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. That's, this is a new section here in verses 13 and 14, abound in hope and goodness. Uh, so we have the idea of being enriched with hope, which we saw there by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the idea of being full of goodness, having been filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. And let's look at some principles of those verses. <clears throat> we are saved by grace through faith, and we should walk by grace through faith. You've heard me preach this over and over again. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Do I need to even turn there? This is going to be one of our memory verses, by the way. Probably... This Sunday, uh, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then, of course, verse 10. I always tell you to draw a line under that. That's salvation. Now, verse 10 is, now that you're a believer, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, what's one of your, what's one of your text, textual clues? This is a little quiz, pop quiz. What's one of your textual clues here that something's changed in verse 10? Yeah, that's, that's true. You got the four. That's a good indication, but there's also something else. That's, that's actually a correct answer. It tells you the four tells you that it, it's built on what precedes, right? It's built on what precedes. In verse 8 and 9, you'll notice it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. And then in verse 10, for we, right? That's a textual clue that something's changed, right? So what we're talking about in verses 8 and 9 is how we get saved, right? By grace, you have been saved. And then when you get to the we, it's not really, that's not exclusionary. It's not talking about a different group, except in the sense that we believers right we believers is what it's talking about are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them so we're supposed to be walking in good works good works which god prepared and that's a lesson that i wish churches were teaching because so many christians are running around trying to get involved in something and they don't even give a second thought to whether or not that's a work that was prepared for them am i supposed to be doing this is it something that I'm supposed to be part of? They don't even consider that, but they should. Colossians 2.6 says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, live out your life abiding in him. 
So as you've received it, how did we receive him? We just read it. We received Christ by grace through faith. Amen? So we're supposed to live out our life abiding in him. The same way. That's what the as means. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, of course, says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. So we just said, by grace through faith, that's how we're supposed to function. That's how our Christian life is supposed to be lived, by grace through faith. We're born again to a living hope, 1 Peter 1, 3, and can be made rich in hope through the Spirit, Romans 5, 1 through 5. We're going to go back and look at that. Yielding joy in anticipation of the gracious fulfillment of our hope. Uh, Romans 8, 24 and 25 and 1 Peter 1, 13. Now, remember, so what is hope? What's what you guys know? The two word, the two word uh, translation I like to use for that word hope. Confident expectation. That's exactly right. So in other words, this is what we're talking about. You, you and I live, we, we live according to a confident expectation. And I'll tell you one of them that everybody in this room ought to have a confident expectation when, that when they depart this earth, they're going to be in heaven with God. That you should have a confident expectation of that. Now, you are living right now in the reality of that confident expectation, but not the fulfillment of it. It hasn't come about yet, has it? You're still here. <laughs> so, so far as I know, you're still here. I don't think you're an apparition of some kind. I think you're still here. And so uh, you have not had the fulfillment of that yet. First of all, we see in 1 Peter 1, 3, Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again into a living expectation. And that's that confident expectation we were talking about. It was translated hope in the New American Standard. Born again into a living expectation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we have been born again into a a living. Now, what does that mean? A living expectation. It's ongoing. It's active, right? It's living. We don't just have it's not like we had hope for a minute and then it's gone. We it's 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 actually part of what we do in our daily lives. It's a living expectation, living hope. And it can be we and we can be made presently right now. We can be pre, presently made rich in hope through the Holy Spirit versus 1 through 5 of Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified as a result of faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also rejoice in our tribulations, knowing well that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured out generously within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Right? So all of this, all of this is a reality, but you got to connect it all back, right? We, you got to connect it in the context of the hope, right? We have that we have this living hope, this living hope and hope is not going to disappoint. But notice one of the things that's interesting about this passage is that as we go through tribulation, that brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. So in other words, our hope can be strengthened as we go through things like that. We can become even more centered on that confident expectation. And then 
we can have joy in anticipation of the gracious fulfillment of that hope. In Romans 8, verses 24, 25, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for something he already sees? But since we hope for something we do not see, with steadfastness we wait eagerly for it. And that's what I was talking about. The fulfillment has not yet come. We, are, we should be functioning with a living hope. I hope you are. <laughs> but it hasn't happened yet. 1 Peter 1.13 Therefore, having prepared your minds for action, being composed, place your confidence wholeheartedly in the grace to be granted to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, when, when is Christ going to be revealed to us? At the rapture. Now, the world, when is he going to be revealed to the world? Second advent. But who, we, are, we are part of his body and he is, we are going to have this revelation of Jesus Christ at the rapture. And we can, we can have confidence in that. Again, that is the idea of that hope. Confident expectation wholeheartedly in the grace to be granted to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Can you, I mean, what an act of grace that is going to be. I mean, think about it. I mean, it, that, it doesn't matter whether you're alive or whether you've already died. Everybody's going to be brought together. The church is going to be as one, united, and meeting Jesus Christ in the air. I mean, that's just going to be that's, it's an unbelievable event. And grace is, uh, is going to abound in all of that because that's all because of the grace of God. Although the believers in Rome needed to be established in their faith... We talked about that way back when we were very first looking at Romans and you know what the what the book was all about, right? We talked about how the, that Paul knew that they needed to be established in their faith. They were full of hope, joy, peace, and goodness, and they were able to admonish one another. In other words, it, even though they needed to be established in their faith, they were already functioning as a matter of faith. You see what I'm saying there? They were already functioning in their faith, but they needed to be established in it. Now, what what is that about? I will look around the room and I can go, if, if we wanted to, we could bring up a mirror and I could look in the mirror. All of us need to be, all, all of us need to be established in the faith. All of us need to be, right? We may be functioning in the faith right now, but we need to be established in the faith because more and more and more over time, as you continue to grow, as the word of God continues to help you to grow, as the trials and tribulations help you to grow, you're becoming cemented in, established in the faith. We all need it. Romans 1, 8 through 12 says, To begin with, I give thanks to my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. See, their faith was already a, a known entity. People knew about the faith of the church in Rome. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, pleading with God, if perhaps now, by the will of God, I will finally succeed in coming to you, for I yearn to visit you so that I may share a certain spiritual gift with you to the end that you may be established. He goes on to say that is that I may encourage together, be encouraged together with you while among you through each other's faith, but both yours and mine. But see, that's the whole thing. And that's another thing. What is Paul saying right there? There's an aspect of being established in our faith that comes in fellowship, Right fellowship one with another. I think that's a huge thing that a lot of people overlook. 
But fellowship one with another, as we share in the things of the faith, it grounds us even more in the faith. Because now it's not just what we've experienced in our own lives in terms of how, how God's been working in our lives and how the, you know, the reality of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, but also you're seeing it play out in other people's lives. And it's very, very comforting to, to hear about that. And it really does ground us in our faith. But we all, everybody, all of us need to be established in our, in our faith. The ability to minister to one another within a local assembly is important for the growth of the entire body. We need to be able to minister to one another. See, ultimately, if, if, you were, if you were to ask me what is one of the goals of my ministry here at Lost Pines Bible Church, it would be that as a local church, we would have a body of believers who can minister to one another. Not just that the pastor can minister, but that you have a body of believers within this local church who can minister to one another. That, when you have that, when you have, there's a certain things that I point to that are important. When you have a, a congregation that's a prayerful congregation, that's powerful. It's important. It's very powerful. When you have a congregation that's, that's serious about their faith, right? They spend, they spend the time and the energy to come, come to know more and more about God and his word. But when you have a, a congregation that's able to minister to one another, that is a healthy local church because the pastor, I, I, know, I know y'all aren't going to really believe me when I say this, but your pastor is monopresent, right? I'm only in one place at one time. I can't be everywhere, but you guys, you know, I look out and I see you guys have opportunities to minister to one another all the time in places where I am not. So that is a huge thing for a local church to be able to have the body of believers within that church able to minister to one another. Uh, Ephesians 4, 14 through 16, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up into all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Notice what it says in verse 16. That's where we're heading. From whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. Every time I read this passage, I emphasize that. Every joint supplies. It doesn't say from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what the pastor of the church supplies. It doesn't say that. Or one part of the body. It doesn't even talk about one part of the body, right? It says what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. This is so huge. This is so huge. We are not, I am, I am monopresent, but this local church body is not monogifted. There's not just one gift, right? There are many gifts, and all of you are, I, as I look around this room, I'm looking at people that are believers that are maturing in their faith, who have the capacity to perform many ministry tasks, in terms of ministering to one another. I see that as I look around the room. Colossians 2, 18 and 19. Don't let anyone rob you of your reward by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, going on and on about what is supposed, what he has supposedly seen, conceded without any basis by his fleshly mind, and not focusing on the head, from whom the entire body being supported and knit together by the ligaments and tendons grows spiritually with a spiritual growth, which is from God. Now, see, that's the part you don't want to miss, right? 
See, there's the, you connect these two passages together. Yes, it's all about the body and the way it works and it functions together. But as the body is focusing on the head, recognizing that the growth comes from God, right? The ministering comes from God. The growth comes from God. In all of this, the ultimate focus is on Jesus Christ, fixing our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of faith. All right, now this is one we're probably not going to finish. Fulfilling the one another admonishments in the New Testament is indicative of a healthy local church assembly. We got a whole bunch of one another passages here. And we're going to start looking at them, but we ain't going to finish. So this is what we're going to come back to on Sunday morning. Romans 12:10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Excel in showing honor to one another. Notice there's two one another's in here, right? We're supposed to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And by the way, that's, I'm pretty sure that's, uh, I can't do it on this because that's my translation, but I'm pretty sure that's Philadelphia, brotherly love. And then it says, excel in showing honor to one another. So in the same verse, we have two one another concepts that we're supposed to fulfill uh, not holding back in your diligence, enthusiastic in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, consistent in prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality. So it goes on. It goes on there. But notice the one another one another concepts in verse 10 devotion to one another and showing honor to one another. Verse 16 of that same chapter, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but instead associate with the lowly. Stop being wise in your own estimation. So the same mind toward one another. Not, not being arrogant. Stop being wise in your own estimation. Be of the same mind toward one another. By the way, part of the reason I decided to do this in the initial verse-by-verse study that we were going through is that we hit the idea of this one another, right? This, this one another concept in this particular passage. And it made me realize, you know, that's something we really need. You really need to understand in what all we have in the New Testament regarding one another concepts, right? For the local church, for the body of Christ. Uh, Romans thirteen eight says, uh, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So devotion to one another, honoring one another, right? Loving one another. These are one another concepts. Uh, Romans fourteen thirteen says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put a cause for offense or a stumbling block in a brother's way. So here, this is, this is actually a prohibition rather than a command, Right? Instead of it being in the positive sense that we're supposed to do these things, this is something you're not supposed to do. Let us not judge one another anymore. Same chapter, verse 19. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. You had to know we were going to get there. All right, ultimately, if you think about it, if I'm devoted to, if we have a devotion to one another, if we have showing honor to one another. If we love one another, we're going to be building each other up, right? We're not going to be tearing one another down. We're going to be building each other up. And by the way, as in contrast to the world's definition of love, sometimes in love we have to say 
difficult things, right? There, if, if, if somebody if somebody is veered off course, somebody sometimes you have to say something to them in love, uh, which is not maybe not what they want to hear, but that's what you, you need to do in love. Romans 15:5. Now may the God who gives steadfastness and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus. We just looked at this. On Sunday morning, this was a one, so be of the same mind with one another. We saw that same concept before, right? Be of being of the same mind with one another. Now, part of that comes through part of being of the same mind comes through this right here, doesn't it? I mean, as we because if you if you think about what we what we have, we always call it the term we like to use is like mindedness. That's what really you have here, like mindedness. But where that comes from is from knowing the scriptures, knowing God and knowing the scriptures and as we know the scriptures, we have all of that in common, right? Now, there's going to be differences between each and every one of us, but the like-mindedness we can have is, our, uh, is based upon what we know of God's word. Yes, sir. And our worldview, after we've learned, after we've matured somewhat, becomes tied to I, I agree with that. The, the, Tom pointed out the worldview. The worldview which you end up having as a result of knowing God's word and knowing who God is, you're going to have a, a worldview that's been shaped on that, and we are going to have, if we sit around and talk about it, we're going to be pretty, pretty much aligned in terms of our worldview. So that comes about, what we were just talking about, being of the same mind with one another, that comes about through growth. Two verses later in verse 7, it says, therefore, accept one another. We saw that just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Accept one another. That's another. These are all, these are all one another basic concepts and really commands in the New Testament. So their commands for us today as part of the church. A few verses later in verse 14 that we just looked at. Concerning you, my brethren, I myself also have become convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, having been filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. So see what I was, remember what I was talking about with if you truly love somebody, you need to have the ability to be able to admonish someone. But it has to be done in love. It has to be done as part of your devotion to, the, to that person. It has to be done as part of your showing honor to them. So if you admonish someone and you do it in anger or you do it in some other way, you haven't fulfilled any of this. It has to be done in love. And there's a huge difference. There's a huge difference in the way you handle that in love as opposed to in uh, other emotions Romans 16, 16 says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, I don't want you to come up and start giving me kisses. That's not what it's talking about. That was a that was something that was done at the time. It was a way that you basically showed somebody uh, affection, if you will, or it was respect, actually respect and appreciation for who they were and so on. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm fine if you just want to shake my hand or I'll give you a hug or whatever. But the idea is it's a way that you show your you show your your uh, affection toward someone else. And the idea that's really present here is that connection that we have in Christ. Really, that's what's being shown here in this verse is that we have this connection in Christ. And so we're supposed to have that open greeting for one another. So don't start coming up and giving me kisses. First uh, Corinthians eleven thirty three. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Now, this is actually in the concept, in the context, I should say, First Corinthians 11 is in the context of what they had at the time called love feasts, 
And these love feasts were, that was their, basically their equivalent of what we do with communion. But they would get together and have, they would have, they called them agape love feasts. That's what they were. They were these agape love feasts. When they started out as a wonderful, beautiful, God-honoring thing, and they turned into something completely different. And uh, so Paul has basically given them, uh, given them some uh, admonishment here in this passage. And he's telling them, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Well, that's one of the reasons why uh, I do that during the communion uh, as we're being served. Please wait until everybody's served so that we can partake together because that principle applies. So wait for one another. But, but if you think about it, isn't that when you come together to eat, wait for one another, isn't that really part of loving one another and showing honor to one another and all that kind of stuff? You know, I mean, that's, it all fits together. 1 Corinthians 12:25, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Right? And that's to me, that's just a function of love, isn't it? That you that you have care for others. It's a function of love. You have the same care for one another, and that's why in that next verse, which we've looked at, is the idea of if one member suffers, we all suffer. 1 Corinthians 16, 20, all, uh, all the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. Again, the same thing we saw before, the idea of greeting with a holy kiss. All right, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, the holy kiss again. Paul likes to talk about that holy kiss. You guys are going to think for sure we've got to do this holy kiss thing, right? Um, Galatians 5, 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And really, that says it all, doesn't it? That really says it all. Through love serve one another. Galatians 5.13. That's where we're going next, Lord willing. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. We're We're not under the Mosaic law. Amen? But we are under the law of Christ. And part of that says to bear one another's burdens. Right? So that's one of the things. How, how, how do we do that? Well, it's through, obviously, one of the ways we do that is through prayer. Um, but it's all, to me, it's all a function of true Christian fellowship. As part of Christian fellowship, we have the opportunity to share in the things that we know of the Word of God. We also have the, the opportunity to, sh- to share our burdens with one another. You know, if you have a particular thing that's that's weighing on you, one of the beautiful things about this local church, the flock that's here, that God has gathered here, is that if you have something that you want us to pray for, if you come and share it with us, we will be lifting it up before the throne of grace. We will gladly share that burden with you. You're not on your own, right? We will bear that burden with you. Um, uh I'll do the Ephesians ones and then we'll stop. Ephesians 4.2 says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And again, I always have to point it out. This is the true definition of tolerance, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, you know, in reality, let me, let me, let me kind of show you where this can come into play. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What about if, what about if um, husband and wife, what about if your spouse just doesn't really seem to be doing a very good job of making application of doctrine in situations and falling short of uh, 
you know, really, you know, applying the word of God as they should to particular situations. What if they're falling short in that regard? Well, the attitude you should have is, you know what? They need to grow a little in their faith and you should go in the mirror and look in the mirror and say, and I need to grow a little in the faith. So the way that we can tolerate one another is recognizing that, you know what? I mean, this particular situation, maybe I'm looking at it as, you know, that, that they're, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, but how many times a day do I not do what I'm supposed to be doing, right? So I can, show, I can be tolerant. I can, I can show tolerance for them. But it's done in love, right? It's done in, in that operational sphere of love, showing tolerance for one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So we have two one another's here, really, the being kind to one another and forgiving each other. Um, I, I think... It's amazing. It's amazing how far that will go. I mean, if you go back and we're not doing it now, but if you go back and you look at the Proverbs and what it talks about is basically uh, kindness can dampen the flame of anger. Right. It's amazing how much of how effective kindness can be. If you show kindness to another person, it's amazing what a difference it can make. Um I mean, it's, 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 it really is a, a, an amazing, powerful thing. And that tenderheartedness is really where that comes from, right? Being a tenderhearted individual. And again, as I go, as I always like to say, I don't see anything here that says this is just for the ladies, right? This is men are supposed to be tenderhearted, kind to others, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's a, that's a manly attribute. Uh, Ephesians 5.21, we're going to stop right here. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So now we have being subject to one another. What does that mean? It's, the, it's really the idea of putting you ahead of myself, isn't it? That's what that really is talking about. I'm subjecting myself to you. I'm putting you ahead of me and uh, putting, your, putting your needs ahead of my own. I'm going to subject myself to you in the fear of Christ. And, of course, you could do a lot of work on that. We're not going to do that in this brief study, but this is in the context of Always, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. It's see, a lot of people don't understand this concept. I mean, we know this. You could you could translate this uh, reverence, awe. Uh, lots of different terms could be put in there instead of the word fear, because phobos can mean all of those things. But the idea of, of, of if we have the proper orientation to Christ. Proper awe and respect and admiration for who Christ is, uh, then they have full appreciation of that will help us to be subject to one another. Because if you think about it, first of all, first of all, Christ Himself, what did He do? He, when He came in the kenosis, He subjected Himself to the Father's will, did He not? He showed us, He showed us humility and following after. Uh, the will of the Father. So he taught us by example, but beyond all of that, we, if we're properly oriented to Christ himself, are we not subjecting ourselves to him? We sure should be, right? Because the ultimate goal, the language in the, in the Bible, the ultimate goal is to be, a bond, to be able to call yourself a true bondservant of Christ, submitted and subjecting yourself to him. So if you have a proper orientation to Christ and you're subjected to him as you should be, then subjecting yourself to one another is actually not a problem. It, it actually flows right out of that. Does that make sense? If I'm properly subjected to Christ, it just flows right out of that, that I'm going to be 
subjected to one, uh, others in the body in the body of Christ. I hope that makes sense. We'll come back on Sunday, and we'll pick up in the Philippians passage there, Philippians verse, and then go on from there and look at these one another verses. But for now, we'll go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to go through these verses in Romans chapter 15. It's it's amazing. As we look at this book, there is so much that we can get out of this one single book of the Bible. We've touched on so many different subjects. We have so much uh, that we have been blessed by in terms of understanding just from this one study that we've been doing in this one book. And it correlates and connects so well with so much of the New Testament and also with so many things that we've learned from the Old Testament. It is really, truly an amazing letter that was written by your servant, the Apostle Paul. And I thank you that you moved him through the Holy Spirit that divinely inspired this letter to be written. But beyond all of that, you've preserved it so that we can have it today. We can study it. We can learn these lessons from it. Our lives are enriched because of what you did in the writing of this letter through Paul and in the preserving of this letter for us today. And we thank you so much for that. So much for the blessing of being able to have this that we can study, that we can learn from. We thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.